This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to The Investor Investor. I'm sat opposite Belinda Bell. Belinda is social entrepreneur. She's also the director of Cambridge Social Ventures at Cambridge Judge Business School. So Belinda, can you give the listeners a little bit about your background and what you do here at The Judge? Sure. Hi. So my background is as a social entrepreneur. And by that, I mean setting up and running businesses that have a social outcome as their purpose. So they're businesses that are trying to achieve a social aim, but they're being run as businesses. And I have set up and run a number of those, including kind of fields of finance, property, young people, music technology, older people, all sorts of things. And as a result of the experiences I had going through those processes, my role here at the judge is within our Centre for Social Innovation, where we run programmes supporting social entrepreneurs. So now I run programmes that help other social entrepreneurs to start and scale their impactful businesses. So that's at the moment. So I know you used to, or you were a social entrepreneur. What was your first entrepreneurial journey? So the first organisation I set up is called Foundation East, and it still exists here in East Anglia. And Foundation East lends money to businesses that are unable to access money from the bank. And we set that up about 12 years ago, maybe now. What type of businesses are we talking about here? So it's essentially people who don't have collateral, so people who don't have security to secure a loan. And back then it was less known that that was a problem, whereas these days it's kind of more kind of pre-crash. People didn't realise, or the middle classes didn't realise, that if you didn't have some kind of assets, then you couldn't borrow money to buy a van, to become a window cleaner, that sort of stuff. You also couldn't borrow money if you have a poor credit record. And that's quite a gendered thing, because very often women end up with a bad credit record that relates to their partner's behaviours or their partner's debts. So there's loads of people who couldn't access money, kind of fairly small sums of money. Foundation East uh, still now only lends up to 100k, and the average loan size would be kind of low somewhere in the teens, I imagine. But these are people who have nowhere else to go. And because they have nowhere else to go, that's just a kind of real break on entrepreneurialism and on equality in our communities. So I set that up from scratch and raised money from a, a number of sources, including investors. And as I say, I'm no longer directly involved. I'm a director, but I'm not involved day to day. And it continues to do that work across the east of England. Okay, brilliant. And what was the one after Foundation East? I helped establish Noise Solution, which works with young people using music technology to engage with people who are really hard to reach. And the customers there are kind of local authorities, the police service, schools, probation, that kind of thing. So it's a whole bunch of different public sector customers. And Noise Solution that's run by a guy called Simon Glenster continues to go from strength to strength. And in fact, is just embarking on a scale up process that's fairly significant. Having spent a long time understanding its mission, understanding its methodologies and getting kind of quantifiable evidence of its impact, which is unusual in that field. And so until now, it hasn't used external finance. It's all been kind of a 
growth generated through revenue, but that's going to change in the next little while. Okay, brilliant. So you then transitioned and you came to this building to do a master's? Oh, I did my master's at the business school back when I was running Foundation East at the same time, part-time. There was a master's in community enterprise at that time in the business school, which no longer runs. But in recent years at the Centre for Social Innovation, we have started a new master's programme. And that's taken some of, I guess, my own learning from when I did a master's here, but it's within now a new programme. Tell us a little bit more about social enterprises for people that don't know anything about social enterprises. So the first thing is that the term social enterprise does not mean anything. So we're in an undefined space here. And so if somebody says they've got a social enterprise, you can't really read much into that. It's not meaningful. But what people tend to mean when they say that is that they're running a business with a social purpose. So the social purpose is embedded in what they're trying to do and that for them, for for a social entrepreneur, they wouldn't be satisfied with just making money because the purpose is to create social change. And social enterprises come in all shapes and sizes. So we have, you know, big social enterprises and medium social enterprises and small social enterprises. And it's also not a new thing. I mean, ever since the kind of, you know, the beginnings of commerce, people were trying to use business to do more than just make money, particularly like clever people, because just making money is really not very interesting. Whereas kind of how do I make money within a constricted environment where I also kind of make the world a better place? That's a more interesting challenge, obviously. So social entrepreneurs are very wide and varied. And we say at Cambridge Social Ventures, so we've worked with people working in prisons, providing telecommunication solutions in prisons, providing prosthetics and providing genomics. So because this is Cambridge, where we're based, we do get a bunch of kind of science-y things and big data-y things. But we also work with businesses that employ young women that are not in education, employment or training to build their confidence, to enable them to go on to get a job. So some of the things will work deeply with disadvantaged people and they might work with quite small numbers of people, whereas some of the things will be massive where we're talking about impacts that will have kind of worldwide scale. So, you know, I think you've already interviewed Fiona from Repositive, which is a genomics data set that they were on our first cohort in Cambridge Social Ventures. And so they are enabling data genomic researchers the world over to access genomic data to more rapidly cure genetic diseases. So it's a really broad tent that people identify as being a kind of social entrepreneur. And it's definitely a growing thing. With that wide scope, do you get a lot of companies say they're a social enterprise, where in actual fact, I know you said that it's whether or not the definition means anything. Do you question a few that kind of say that they are social enterprises, large corporations or anything like that? Well, you don't get, I mean, Unilever are probably the closest to claiming that they're a social enterprise and some of their subsidiaries, Ben & Jerry's being the obvious one, would fit somewhat within people's definitions. And in fact, Ben & Jerry's is actually registered as a B Corp, which is one of the kind of marks of that some people regard as social enterprise. For my purposes, it's like I know exactly when I'm speaking to a social entrepreneur and people rarely knock on our door when they're not interested in social change because we're called Cambridge Social Ventures, right? Occasionally we get a social media business that's misunderstood. But generally, there's lots of other places you could go where people were talking about, oh God, it's all about investment raising. It's all about exit. It's all about, you know, 10 multiples of scale and exponential growth and all that kind of stuff. So it's not that our businesses don't do that. It's just that that's not what motivates us. So for me, I don't really have difficulty identifying social entrepreneurs and they tend to be working on really tricky things because 
If it was easy to make a difference in the world and make money, um, somebody else would already be doing it. And so we know by definition that this is tricky stuff, which is also why there's a clear justification for having specialist business support and investment raising support programs, because there's things about these businesses that make them different to regular businesses, in my view. So do they raise funds differently? So across the whole social enterprise space, some of the legal structures employed are non-equity bearing, right? So you can't issue shares. So that's a problem for share-based investment. So leaving aside those for a moment, yes, social enterprises do raise investment. And ones that we work with would always approach that investment raise, having already embedded their social mission into their legal documents. And that puts them in a position of strength from which to negotiate with investors. Because what we know is that if you don't have your mission really clear, it is actually surprisingly possible that people don't realise that that's your motivation. And um, so we have seen deals go wrong at the last minute and then also post-investment because investors hadn't appreciated that if there was a super profitable path, but it involved, you know, paying minimum wage, then an entrepreneur wasn't going to take that path. And that's not through our programs, but through the social enterprise space in general, we've seen these things happen. So in the investment raising journey, we help our entrepreneurs to make sure they're clear on what they care about in terms of their impact and what they care about in terms of their legacy and the stuff that matters to them. You know, I suppose one of the stories in this space would be about Anita Roddick and the body shop. And because of the way in which she raised investment at the beginning of her business, ending up having to lose all of its social impact. And she did have two attempts to buy it back, but unsuccessfully and would, of course, be kind of, you know, turning over in her grave at what's happened to the body shop subsequently. So I don't want the entrepreneurs that we work with or social entrepreneurs in general to put their heart and soul into a thing which they see subsequently being developed in a way which is not in keeping with their values. And so we kind of help on this piece before we start. But the great thing is there are loads of investors who are also interested in this because loads of people are interested in how can I create social change with my money? And so both individual angels that specialise in impact investing and funds. And there is no shortage of impact seeking capital in the world. It's more that there's a shortage of investable ventures of the type because it's an emerging market. And so understanding the nuances of it, understanding what we mean by impact, understanding how we adjust our risk return or don't adjust our risk return ratios, all of that is kind of emerging. So what about ventures that aren't able to raise equity? Sure. So some ventures don't have an equity-based structure, and so they can only use debt. And also, some social entrepreneurs are very wary of raising equity because of the power and control issue. The fact that when you raise equity, you give up some of your power and control, which might matter a lot if it relating to your social mission. So there's kind of a fairly interesting thing in this space, which is a new-ish tax relief. It's been around about four years now called Social Investment Tax Relief, which uh, mimics EIS. And it has, you know, it's just a regular, in the UK, a a regular tax relief. But interestingly, it can be used for debt-based investment. And this can be used by particular types of social enterprises, including, in fact, charities. So charities can raise loans because they can't sell equity because they don't have equity, but they can raise loans using Social Investment Tax Relief, SITR, which has the same 
returns effectively as EIS. So this is a a new development and the recognition that for some organisations debt is important is crucial really for some people within this space. So I was really pleased to see that and we think that it holds a lot of potential as well because it recognises by using a tax relief in this way, it recognises that social ventures are actual businesses. Because we have this big spectrum and I'm not wanting to dismiss micro and small businesses any more than I would want to dismiss large businesses. But there's a a tendency in the investment space to be only interested in this kind of exponential growth and and all that kind of talk, which incidentally is sort of extremely gendered in the way in which it's done and the words that are used. But because of this tendency to think about the big, when social includes, because we're a warm and loving and include everybody, that doesn't mean there's small things which are never going to scale, which are part of our sector, but they're not relevant to this conversation. So it's how do we say that we're all in this same space without people thinking this space isn't an investment space? Because it absolutely is. But obviously there are social enterprises that have scaled hugely and there will be, continue to be, because the space is getting bigger, that will only yes. increase. And for time immemorial, like housing associations are classic examples of the social enterprises. And they actually use a very, very special legal structure which is terrifically good for uh, philanthropic investment raising. But yeah, housing associations are a great example. As you know, they house, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people around the country and they operate a social business model and they raise loads of money in different ways. So over the years as a social entrepreneur and now the director of Cambridge Social Ventures and working with so many different entrepreneurs, what lessons have you learned and kind of tips for entrepreneurs? Well, yes, I work specifically with socially motivated entrepreneurs and Potentially, there are elements that we're doing some study at this at the university uh, that make them different to regular entrepreneurs. We haven't fin- we is haven't this, released is a study, a study available? yet. No, we haven't released it yet. We're collecting and gathering the data and thinking about it. But I think with entrepreneurs in general, so the public discourse has this image of kind of entrepreneurs, which doesn't in any sense replicate what actual entrepreneurs look like because it's uh, all about kind of young white middle class men. So what we know is that businesses are much more likely to succeed if they're set up by older people, for instance. And so the discourse about entrepreneurs, entrepreneurship doesn't respect or recognise what actually goes on in this space, in my view. And then entrepreneurs come from different motivations and very few people are motivated just by making money. Um, You know, people are motivated because they've created this bit of IP and they want to get it out into the world. You know, they're motivated because they want to solve this particular problem or this is the most interesting thing they want to spend their time working on. And with social entrepreneurs, we also have a chunk of people who are motivated because of some personal experience. So my child has got this illness or my father died in a drink driving crash or or whatever it might be. And those entrepreneurs have a kind of exponential version of a regular entrepreneur problem. So that problem is that entrepreneurs struggle to get good feedback because when they tell people about their thing, they tell their mates and they tell their mum and dad and everyone says it's great. And it's really hard to get people to be honest with you. And if your thing relates to solving some illness that killed your child, then it's almost impossible to get anyone to give you good feedback. And so some of the challenges for social entrepreneurs are definitely in acquiring sensible feedback rather than people being nice to them. And the risk, of course, like all entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs can be, you know, like with a dog with a bone and not want to give up. And that's a good characteristic. But my sense is that if you have a personal motivation, that that might be an even more extreme and you might not know when to draw a line. 
and it matters more because if you're trying to solve a social problem, then I don't want you wasting time doing a thing that's not going to work. I want you to stop that dead end and come back and come up with a thing that is going to work. Whereas if you're just building a kind of meaningless shopping app, I don't really care how much time you spend doing it, you know, whereas it really matters. So I think entrepreneurs are a much more complex and nuanced group of people than the kind of the mainstream discourse would imply. But that's some of the stuff that's different about social entrepreneurs. And we're always battling this idea that if you're social, that you, yeah, that you aren't hard headed or something. But, you know, you can't make change in the world if you go bust. And people who are absolutely motivated to solve a social problem, the ones who are good at it, are really good at not going bust, right? And they're good at all the business stuff because you have to be good at all the business stuff before you even worry about the social stuff, right? So we look at our social entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs I've come across The successful ones are far, far more impressive at business than regular business people. They're working in marginal markets, doing a thing that's by definition tricky. And so if they're succeeding, it's because they're exceptional. So here in Cambridge, we obviously have Cambridge Social Ventures. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to social entrepreneurs that weren't in a city that was kind of lucky enough to have the mentoring we have here? Elsewhere in the United Kingdom, the... First thing to do is to get in touch with an organization called Unlimited, the Foundation for Social Entrepreneurs. It's spelled U-N-L-T-D. They are the biggest supporter of social entrepreneurs in the UK, and they work across the regions and do all sorts of different things. So that's the first port of call. A great bunch of people. And they also are the host of a thing called the GSEN, Global Social Entrepreneurs Network or something. And GSEN is the place where internationally organisations that give support to social entrepreneurs will be members of. And so that's a really great international resource. And there are definitely a growing number of programmes that focus on this type of entrepreneur and some of the specialist issues they present with. So where would you like to see the social enterprise space in five to ten years' time? Since I've been working in this field, it's become more and more mainstream, and that is going to continue. I mean, that's inevitable. And what we see are commercial businesses moving to be more social, if you will, you know, and being more having to report on their impacts and, and being more concerned about this because it's a good way of selling stuff and it's a good way of retaining staff as well as it just being a good thing. So we're going to see more big corporates being more interested in this space. And we're going to see more we're already uh, the, the rates of startups in the social spaces is, is just goes up and up and up. The question, I suppose, is at what point do these two merge? And at some places, you might argue they already have. You know, you could say that potentially in in the Ben and Jerry's of this world or whatever. My thinking about this is that I don't really like to have silos. I don't really want to keep social in a silo. I just want this to be business. But the truth of the matter is, at the moment, there's an awful lot of meaningless business startup in the world. Although people will say, oh, you need to be meaningful these days to have a business. I mean, that's just not true. We see a lot of meaningless stuff coming through networks I'm involved with. So I think for the time being, we have to keep social and give it a name and call it a thing because otherwise it will get subsumed and potentially, you know, kind of whitewashed or social washed or something by regular capitalism. And that's something we have to, for now, I think, keep separate. But I'd like to think in 20 years time or something that this would just be business, but not in five So, Belinda, that's been absolutely fascinating. I know our listeners would have learned a lot about social enterprises and what you do. So thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure. Anyone who wants to know more, there's lots on the internet. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. 
Remember, you can order our book online. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting and insightful content from The Invested Investor. investor.